and Sanctuary with Emma Newman. Hello my lovelies. It's awful out there, isn't it? Let's have a nice cup of tea together and maybe a cheeky biscuit or three and have a nice little catch-up. Well, I'm having a cup of tea. You can have whatever you like, of course, as long as it makes you happy. If it pleases you, feel free to imagine that we're in a forest glade with a welcoming campfire and fairy lights strung between the trees around us. There are marshmallows for toasting and flasks of hot chocolate to enjoy later too. Mm, lovely. I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little bit strange. <laughs> it sounds strange in my head. It may not sound so strange to you. I don't know. And it might get a little bit worse before this recording is done. It's just the tail end of a horrible cold that I had between the last episode and this one. Honestly, it's much better than it was just, you know, a few days ago. If I still had that voice now, I'd be tempted to call this episode Tea and Smooth Late Night Jazz. Oh no, I need to do it properly, don't I? Tea and Smooth Late Night Jazz. Or, you know, something like that. (laughs) Anyway, if this is your first time here, I'm going to talk to you about things that have made me happy, things that give me hope, and then a little bit about what I've been up to lately. There are five segments in all and it's all unscripted. Above all else, what I want to do is to create a sanctuary, just for a little while for you and I, so that we can restore ourselves. Because goodness knows we all need it at the moment. Part one, a delightful real world experience. I am in the very lovely position of having had two delightful real-world experiences since the last episode, as there was a work trip to London a couple of weeks ago. However, this weekend just gone, I went to BristolCon, and I've decided to talk to you about that one instead. I would have loved to have been able to tell you about the amazing installation my friend did for the Manchester Science Fair that I was supposed to take part in, but that stupid cold absolutely destroyed me for over a week and I had to cancel which is rubbish I hate letting people down and I let my friend down and my dad as well because I was going to stay with him and I was really looking forward to it but never mind these things happen and it was better to stay at home instead of making lots of people all over the country ill as well anyway thankfully aside from having a bit of a dodgy voice I was well enough to go to BristolCon It's a one-day science fiction and fantasy convention with some extras on the Friday night, the Bristol Con Fringe, but it is all contained within one Saturday and it happens every year in the city of Bristol in the UK. And this was my first convention since Worldcon in 2019 in Dublin. Oh my goodness, (laughs) it's like over three years. I think the very last public event I did was a one-day Galans Fest, which was three years ago. But in terms of actual full-on convention, yes, this was the first one since summer 2019. And I'm not going to lie, I was so nervous. I really was fearful that I'd forgotten how to people, let alone how to be at a convention. (laughs) 
And, you know, I've been quite hermit-like, not just because of the pandemic, though that was a very big part of it, but also because I had a breakdown and I really had to withdraw from the world in a very real way to heal and recover and rebuild myself. But I finally felt able to go and do a convention again and BristolCon is my local one. It's always been my local one and I love it. I had such a warm welcome from the committee um, and if any of the committee are listening, thank you so much. You made me feel like I was coming home which I was in convention terms, but it was really nice to feel that from you. So thank you. Um, You looked after me so beautifully. Um, I did the art show for the first time at BristolCon, which was my third ever art show. So thanks to Bav for looking after me and um, showing me where the space was and, you know, helping me out with um, <laughs> with parking shenanigans and all sorts of things. So, yeah, thank you so much. It was it was really lovely doing the art show. And I always get into such a tiz before I do them. Um, but it was lovely. I sold some paintings. I sold my first little rock dragon. Um, I did a YouTube short of the display Um, on the Friday night after I'd got it all set up. So if you're curious, go over to my YouTube channel and you can see what I was displaying at the show. Uh, The convention also incorporated my first panel in three years. And it was called Jack of All Trades. And it was about the differences, if any, in writing across different genres. Ian Waits of New Compress and all-round splendid chap was our mod um, and did a great job of it. Um, And we had a really good laugh. For me, panels at conventions, like my responsibility as a panellist at a convention is to to try and be interesting and relevant for the panel topic, of course. But I always try to make people laugh too, because if it's subject appropriate, of course, you know, if we're talking about something where there is room for humour, I will always try to make the audience laugh because, you know, I'm I'm very aware that I'm there to entertain people. There was a lovely atmosphere and once it got started and I relaxed, I was so nervous beforehand, I, I was shaking and felt sick. Um, but once it got started, I had a great time and it was lovely. And, and I sat next to my colleague, Jane Fenn, who is just splendid, wearing another excellent hat. <laughs> If anyone, I don't know if anyone gets the reference of my colleague, but it was from an old comedy show in the 90s, I think. So I'm showing my age, aren't I? A bit of Fry and Laurie. Some of those sketches are still absolutely relevant today. Um, but anyway, there's one of the sketches they, they call each other my colleague um, as a term of endearment. So yeah, sitting next to Jane and chatting away about writing sci-fi and and urban fantasy and and it was it was great it was it was just so good to be with my people again you know when I was away from the scene during the breakdown and and (laughs) in those those dark years I, I really didn't know if I would ever be able to go back I didn't know if I was going to even continue writing and now I'm writing again and being back at the convention, 
just it was so reassuring it was so comforting to be back and to be able to catch up with old friends dear dear friends that I've known for years and haven't seen for years it was fantastic and I made new friends too the thing that's lovely about BristolCon as well is that it is only one day I just don't know how I used to do it, but I used to sometimes fly to the States and do like five day long conventions with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Good Lord, how did I do that? That just seems unfathomable to me now. I can't imagine doing that. Um, But the nice thing about BristolCon is it is genuinely small and friendly. There are two streams of programming and some small breakout room sessions. And it's so manageable and a kind of perfectly formed small convention that enables you to have a weekend away if you want it. You know, there are things on the Friday night as well. They have like open mic sessions and things. But if you want to, you can just have a full on day on the Saturday and then you've still got Sunday to recover or, you know, go and have breakfast with friends the day after if you're staying over or whatever. And I really, really like that. I really like how manageable it is. So, yes, thank you to everybody who made me feel so welcome. It was lovely to meet new people. And thank you to the people who gave my art a new home. It was really lovely. Part two, a delightful creative work. I was hoping to record this on Halloween, but my voice gave out on me. (laughs) But it's still kind of spooky season, right? The nights are drawing in. I love this time of year. I really am a winter person and I, I have felt myself coming back to life as the weather has cooled down and the days have got shorter. And oh, it's it just makes me so happy to be back into the time of year of jumpers and hats and scarves and walks out in in the countryside when it's cold and blowing a gale. I love all of this stuff. So yes, I love this time of year. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to hold on to spooky season a little bit longer because the delightful creative work I want to tell you about is a movie that I saw the night before Halloween called Ready or Not, which is a horror movie, but it's also a comedy movie as well. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Severance. Um, it's it, I love that movie. The lovely, lovely James Moran wrote Severance. And for me, it is a perfect blend of horror and comedy. When I first heard about the genre, I was thinking, hmm, is this for me? Because I'm such a Bertie when it comes to horror movies. I honestly have not watched any horror movies since accidental viewings as a kid. <laughs> That really screwed me up. Over my recovery in the last couple of years, as I have felt safer within my own skin and better able to regulate my my emotions and my physiological response to them, I have been trying a little bit more horror in the film world. I can never read horror. I know that. I have tried. I have had to stop partway through books because my imagination is too good and I find it too distressing. And with movies, if they're supernatural, like really, really spooky, spooky horror, I can't do those. I still can't do those. 
But some kinds of horror I have been able to do. And this movie, Ready or Not, definitely falls into the category of horror that I can actually enjoy. Uh, So I don't want to give too much away. But Ready or Not is this really weird, super wealthy family that have a tradition for anyone who marries into the family. They have to draw a card from this kind of puzzle box. And there's a whole story about where this box came from that was involved in the family's acquisition of their wealth. And depending on the card you draw determines what the game is that the family all plays together. And there is only one card that can be drawn that can lead to horror. And of course, that is the card that is drawn for this movie. (laughs) It's great. The lead character is fantastic. She's played by an actor called Samara Weaving, who I later discovered is the niece of Hugo Weaving of Agent Smith fame. She's incredibly beautiful. And when I saw her, I thought, wow, she looks just like if Emma Stone and Margot Robbie had a child. She's like the perfect blend of the two of them. But she's so good in this role. She's fantastic. She goes through absolute hell in this movie and is utterly convincing and realistic and wonderful. It kind of has the feel of Knives Out, which is another movie which I adore and I probably will gush about at some future point. And I don't mean it in terms of it's a murder mystery. It's, it's very not. It's a very different genre. But it's all set in this huge, sprawling mansion. It is centred around a really screwed up, super wealthy family and the relationships that they have within that family. So that's what's reminiscent of Knives Out. And the thing that I loved about this movie is that it really keeps you guessing about how this poor woman is going to get out of this awful situation she's in. There's really sharp commentary on the super rich and just how awful they can be. It's absolutely great stuff and it is genuinely funny in places. Now, if, like me, you are a little bit nervous around the horror genre, there are a few gory deaths and there are a couple of body horror scenes which I didn't look at. I was very lucky. I was watching it with my bestie, And they told me when the really bad stuff was coming up so I could cover my eyes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there are a couple of scenes which if you don't like body horror, which I don't, you may need to look away. But there's no scary supernatural horror. And uh, it's, it's genuinely satisfying in terms of its ending. It's great stuff. And there's stuff that really genuinely makes you think, which I love. So, yes, ready or not... If you are still in spooky season, wherever you are, I really do recommend it. It came out in 2019 and I feel like it kind of got lost. It was just before the pandemic and Knives Out came out and Get Out, which is also a fantastic movie, came out around the similar time. And I think it just kind of got lost between them. And I think horror comedy is a genre that a few people are not very comfortable with, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too, if you choose to watch it. Part 3. Something that gives me hope. There's a bookshop in Clevedon called Books on the Hill. 
and it's run by a lovely couple called Chloe and Alistair. And they were both at BristolCon this weekend. They had a stand in the dealer's room. Alistair pretty much bounced up to me full, full of exuberant enthusiasm, which was absolutely lovely, and called me over to show me the dyslexia-friendly collection of books that they publish as a small press. And it's called Both Press, which is the acronym of Books on the Hill, which is cool. And the thing that's really special about these books is that they're printed in a particular font on cream-coloured paper, and it makes it easier to read for dyslexic people and for anyone who has eyesight problems. Now, these are the only easily available dyslexia-friendly printed books for adults, would you believe? There are so many for children, but until Books on the Hill decided to set up their own small press and cater for dyslexic adults, there weren't any that were aimed for older people. Alistair is dyslexic, and so it was a very personal need for him as well. And I absolutely love the fact that he and Chloe saw that there was a effectively a gap in the market, that there were people who were neglected and a lack of accessibility and decided to fix it. And so they have had two successful Kickstarter campaigns to do, um, I think it's eight titles in each campaign. So there's 16 titles available. There may even be more now. Um, and they are really, really good stories and authors that they've picked for their early releases. So there are stories available written by our very own Adrian Tchaikovsky and Gareth L. Powell. And there's also um, a Sharp story um, by Bernard Cornwall. And all of these published books are what I would class as a novelette. They're around, I think, 12 to 16,000 words long. So they're like really, really long short stories, effectively. But it means that it's, um, it's not intimidating. And Alistair was talking about how for dyslexic adults who may not have had the opportunity to fall in love with reading, managing a, a whole novel, a big, chunky book, is really intimidating. And so they've made this accessible in terms of length as well. I love this. I love it when, when people identify that there is a lack of accessibility in an area and they go and fix it. I, I think it's great. And that is entirely what Chloe and Alistair have done. So if you're dyslexic or if you're looking perhaps for a Christmas present for a dyslexic friend who loves science fiction and fantasy, um, you can get the books direct from Books on the Hill. And their web address is www.booksonthehill.co.uk. And of course, you can, if you're in the area, you can go to their bookshop, which is in the lovely small coastal town of Clevedon. They are lovely people and they are doing a great thing. So if you are able to support them, then please do. Part four, adventures in surviving late stage capitalism as a writer. You know, considering I'm a writer, I don't seem to have been doing much actual proper writing lately. <laughs> But that's the thing about being a writer. It's it's actually really, really hard to survive just from writing alone. So I've been doing lots of other things that um, bring in other streams of income. 
Over the last couple of weeks, I had that absolutely horrendous cold, which screwed up my plans in terms of the trip to Manchester. But before then, I was able to go to London. I'm involved in a project which is being run as a collaboration between Coventry University and a specific branch of the Ministry of Defence, would you believe, um, which is called the Creative Futures Project. And it's all about envisaging the future and how it's impacted by climate change. And eventually, after a series of workshops, I was in the first one a couple of weeks ago, producing short stories and hopefully a, a short story collection from the work that we're doing. There's lots of authors and academics involved. It was really, really interesting and exciting. The other thing I've been doing in terms of work was preparing for the Bristol Con Art Show. And in the couple of days before the event where I was still feeling a bit rotten um, because of that cold, but well enough to do things in little bursts, um, I finished off some of my weird little sculptures for the art show. Like I've made a couple of gribblies, I call them, that are in little teacups. One is called the Transactional Relationship Monster and um, like a little baby dragon on a rock and things like that. And I, I love doing visual art. But when I was getting everything ready for the show, I was like, oh, I really, really want to do some painting again. I haven't done any actual paintings for three years, funnily enough. And it, I've been mostly working on like the sculptures and a kind of stitched piece of art that uses a particular kind of Japanese silk and really beautiful beads and things. So I've been doing what I suppose proper artists would call mixed media art. But I, I don't know if I can take myself seriously enough to say that. Isn't that silly? But anyway, I enjoyed making it so much and I'm trying to overcome my fear of sharing my art more widely. I've only shown my art in art shows at conventions where I know my people are there. Just before the Bristol Con Art Show, I did that YouTube short and thought, if I can share this online, this may help me to be a bit less nervous about the art show because I'll have already showed people my art. I don't know if that makes sense. So yes, <laughs> I put it up online and... Thinking about how the art show went and and the fact that so many people said lovely things about my work and um, I made some sales again, I'm really, I was going to say seriously considering, no, I've made the decision that I'm going to find a way to sell my art online because if I can sell some more art, then I can afford the materials to make more. And that's what I want to do. There are loads of things that I've got in my head that I want to make and explore but financially, I can't do that unless I, I bring in some more money. So um, that's going to be something that I'm doing over the next few weeks alongside all of the other things. So, yes, I've been researching packaging materials for sending out paintings and I'm still uncertain about whether I could post the sculptures. I still feel they're too fragile. But one of the things that I'm wondering about is whether there are any bookshops out there that might like to sell my kind of physical sculpture art which is is very small but very fragile so it would be ideal if people bought them in person and then they could be packaged up and carried home rather than being shipped so I don't know if if you're listening to this and by some 
happy um, coincidence you have some kind of bookshop or art shop that uh, you would be happy to stock some weird, very small sculptures in, drop me a line uh, through my website. I have a, a contact form on there. I would love to explore how to do this. This is, this is a world that I, I am not experienced in or really part of outside of convention art shows. And even at that, I am a absolute novice. Like I said, the Bristol Con one was my third one ever. I really want to do more paintings and this is the way that I can do that. So yeah, uh, the other thing I'm doing at the moment for work is preparing for my next audiobook narration project. And this is a novella by Stephanie Burgess, who is absolutely lovely. And she has a book called Good Neighbours that she ran a Kickstarter to do the audiobook for. And I was so excited when Stephanie said that she planned to do this and asked if I'd be interested in being the narrator if the Kickstarter was successful. Because I've already narrated three novellas for Stephanie, which I absolutely loved their um, kind of historical urban fantasy, which is absolutely my jam. And uh, they're called Spellswept, Snowspelled and Thornbound. And they were so enjoyable to narrate that I was really excited when she told me about this. And Good Neighbours is kind of a spooky romance. I'm prepping the manuscript at the moment, which means like reading it through, making notes, looking up pronunciations, making my cast list of characters and notes about how they should sound. And the first day of recording is next week. And it'll be great to be back in the studio. It's been um, a few months since I was in the studio. And I really hope that my voice sounds better than it does right now. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Though my voice, as I'm talking now, it sounds so much deeper than usual. I don't know if that translates outside of my head or if it's just because my ears are still a little bit blocked. But yeah, I kind of feel like I would love to be able to do all of the male voice parts at the moment, but that's not how it works, sadly. And then also in the background of that as well, I am continuing to work on my utopian novel. So yes, days are full and I have that horrible sense of needing to catch up a lot because I lost about 10 days to this horrendous cold. I don't often get colds, but when I do, they absolutely flatten me. Uh, I'm still waiting for the cover of my uh, for my short story collection in the Planetfall universe. And obviously, because of this awful cold, the recording of the audiobook has been screwed up too. So there are delays on that, but that is also ticking over in the background. Part 5. Delicious Nerdery I have a LARP event in just under three weeks, which is a player event and is part of the Empire LARP that I play. So for Empire, there are four mainline events a year, and that's three days. Well, it ends up being four days because I always go up the day before, where literally thousands of players all congregate near Silverstone and you play the, the main game there. But in the Empire system... You also get player events, and these are small-scale events that are organised and run by the players. And some of them have plot lines which are sanctioned by Profound Decisions, which is the company that runs Empire. So you can have plot that is officially recognised in-game, like in-canon, and can have effects on your character 
at subsequent mainline events. Or you can just have really small scale social events, um, which is the one I'm going to in three weeks time, which is refreshingly local. Um, It just runs on the Saturday afternoon and evening, and it's effectively a party that I will be attending in character. The nice thing about this sort of player event is that it's going to be indoors. And for Empire, that's really quite exciting because I can make something to wear which is really, really fancy without having to worry about whether it's waterproof or mudproof, whether it needs to adapt to experiencing effectively four seasons of weather in one weekend. It can be floor length. Hooray. You know, things like that. And I've been making clothes for over 20 years, a very long time ago. I used to be a designer dressmaker and uh, I have lots of bits of fabric in my crafting room left over from dozens of projects. And I've got some leftovers that I think I could make into a really, really fancy dress for my character. So the delicious nerdery that I'm going to be uh, doing in the next three weeks is designing and making an outfit for this party for my character. So what I love about costume design for Empire is that it's really involved (laughs) because it's not just designing something that looks nice. It's about conveying a character through the costume design and also adhering to the rules about the aesthetic of your nation and in my case, my character's house because my character comes from a nation called Dawn and there are noble houses and each noble house has its own heraldry. And so for my character, I need to, or I choose to, it's not strict, but I choose to always represent the colours and heraldry of my house within the costume design. So those colours are red and gold, or bright yellow, but because my character is noble, I always edge towards gold if I can. The reason why, even though I've been playing this character for, ooh, five, six years now, the reason why I feel the need to make a new dress for her is because she is evolving as a character. She's coming to terms with the fact that she's an actual noble. She has earned her nobility in this world. It's not hereditary. You earn your nobility. And um, even though she earned her nobility some years ago, she's found that very difficult to internalise. But now she's better able to conceive of herself in that way. And so she needs clothing that reflects her social status, but also conveys an increase in her confidence, which is a really big part of the character arc that I'm playing. So I'm really excited about designing it. It's early medieval as a guideline. Each of the nations in the game have their own aesthetic guidelines and draw from different time periods and loose cultural references, like Renaissance Italy is one of the nations that is drawn upon. Um, That's the League nation. And so each nation has its own general aesthetic. For Dawn, it's early medieval British and European Um, fashions but you can choose over you know a good couple of hundred years of fashions so that there is quite a broad spectrum to choose from but 
you need to keep it within that aesthetic so that other players can recognise you as from that nation. And it works really well in game to have people that really do look like they come from very different places. It adds to the the vibrancy, the multicultural feel of the game. It's just wonderful. I love it. So yeah, that's that's something that also needs to be taken into account as well. But the great thing about it being LARP and it being a fantasy LARP is that it's not reenactment. I don't have to make sure that it's all hand-sewn and only uses materials that were plausibly available in the 13 and 1400s in England. I can use synthetic fabrics if I want to, as long as they don't look too modern. And, you know, so it's okay to use something that looks like silk, even though it's synthetic, for example. And it's okay to wear velvets that are synthetic rather than, you know, something that might be more period appropriate. I'm I'm currently blanking on whether they even had velvet in the 1300s. I can't remember. I know that it was mostly very fine wools and silk and brocades anyway. But yes, I have much more freedom in terms of the materials, not only because it's a fantasy LARP and I don't need to be historically accurate, but in this very particular circumstance, it doesn't have to be weatherproof. So I can wear much fancier fabrics that are floor length without worrying that I'm going to end up with 10 inches of caked on mud (laughs) at the end of the event. So I'm very excited about this. It makes me happy to design fantasy clothing and to think about what it says about my character, think about how I represent my house and my nation. And in a way as well, everybody's costume choices are a social contribution to the realism and immersion of the game. And that is so evident at Empire. It, it, it's such a visual feast that I, that's one of, the, one of the many aspects of the game that I really enjoy is, is just the spectacle of, of how amazing everybody looks. You've just listened to an episode of Tea and Sanctuary. If you enjoyed the show and would like to be an absolute bless poppet, you can help to keep the teapot full by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash Emma Newman. This episode was brought to you by four cups of tea, some honey and lemon, and one drop of good luck bought from the creature that lives in a nearby tree. Go forth, my splendid pumpkins and be lovely to each other.